0: As we pass the six-month mark of living with the coronavirus in this country, we're wondering about the permanent impact of COVID-19 on people's perception of higher density living, proximity to urban centres, public transport, changes to work and other aspects of living that we've always taken for granted. It has
1: been the the goal of all levels of government for decades in Australia to decentralise the population and it hasn't happened simply because people move to where they work, or close to where they work, and the regions simply weren't the places where the jobs were created. But now, all of the towns that are at least in the in a somewhat commutable distance, whatever that means, to the job centers, they will see growth. <laughs>
0: download our free full or forecast report, which experts can you trust to get it right? The elephant in, the in this episode, we're joined by demographer Simon Kusemacher. Back when we last spoke to Simon in episode 40, he gave us insights into the implications of our ageing population coupled with population growth. We talked about how these factors were shaping our urban environments and how we live. Clearly, a lot has changed since then with population growth virtually halted. If you haven't heard of Simon before, you're in for a treat because he's a living, breathing research machine. As well as being a demographer, he's a data scientist, speaker, advisor, writer, media, commentator, geographer and holds a Master's in Philosophy. Back in 2017, Simon became the Director of Research at the Demographics Group and works alongside probably Australia's best-known demographer, although I think Simon's giving him a run for his money now, Bernard Salt. In this episode, we are keen to access Simon's mind to gain insight into how changing demographics and attitudes will affect our needs and desires for housing. Thank you so much for joining us, Simon.
1: Oh, thank you for having me back.
2: Oh, Simon, good to chat to you always, mate. I really enjoy it. I wonder if Covid is going to be something we look back on in twenty to thirty years' time, that something that truly did change the world. Do you think that's going to be the case? Um,
1: I guess it really depends on how fast uh, we are getting this thing under control. Mm-hmm. But I think that definitely in the short to medium term, Covid will actually change the the structure of Australian cities very much because we are right now in the process of of realigning. Um, this as, as as we speak, if you will.
0: And when you say the structure, what do you mean?'m
1: oh, I'm, I'm thinking, for example, at the uh, of the emptying of the inner city. Uh, we had this big surge of population in the inner cities for for decades now happening um, because we built so many new knowledge jobs, these jobs that like to cluster in these skyscrapers in our inner cities, and then all of those, uh, Lower skilled support jobs that uh, provide services to those uh, office tower workers. Um, now that we were forced to work from home, we have seen a temporary emptying of the inner cities. And for some people, not for all uh, by any means, um, the working from home thing will become a more, uh, more, uh, more permanent solution, more permanent adage to their work week. We'll see more and more people work two, three days per week from the, uh, from the home office and only go to the inner city for two days a week maybe um, to, to do the face-to-face meetings, which will still be of importance for many, many sectors. Uh, but we now saw that we can run a business with um, a smaller or a working-from-home um, workforce which then leads us to think, what do you do if you're a big employer? Let's say you, uh, you, you currently lease 10 floors in, in, in a tower in, in, in Sydney, in Barangaroo. Um, the next time your lease comes up for renewal, you will be okay by just leasing out seven or eight floors. You will minimize your, your footprint because at any given day, a higher share of your workforce will be working from home. So we see that the big employers are not um, escaping the cities, but they're minimizing their footprint, and we'll have fewer people at any given time for for quite a while in the inner cities, which then means there are fewer people that need to provide support services, uh, you know, um, brew coffee, clean offices, yeah. etc., for those people as well. So the inner city is not the hottest game in town at all for a couple of years, I would expect.
2: But do you think that ultimately companies will still want to have their CBD base? And if they only need less space, now they can potentially afford to go to the CBD rather than needing a big office in the outer suburbs. Now they can potentially say, well, actually as a business, we can potentially just, you know, set that up in the CBD where, you know, we're going to be around the action more. Do you think that's going to compensate a little bit?
1: Uh, I'd I'd say there might be a compensation from some second tier companies that are actually um, still doing well. Uh, that then all of a sudden see affordable office space popping up in the inner city. And mm-hmm. then you can have a much more lucrative address. You can have a more accessible office space. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense, but only for those select few players that uh, are currently not in the inner city and that are currently doing well. So there that, that are not too many players out there since many, mm-hmm. many businesses took a hit. But there are still industries that are that are growing. There are 19 official industries in um, in Australia, and not all of them are are seeing population decline. That's also important uh, to to remember. That that six out of the 19 industries actually saw growth over the last uh, quarter. Uh, so we, we saw we saw a, a big job growth in the utility sector. That's the um, electricity, yeah. gas, water services. Agriculture uh, saw. Big job growth, public ad, public admin and safety. That makes sense in in a, in a pandemic mm. in, a, in a climate of job loss. You're not um, deleting jobs. You you you're just holding on to all your employees and you even take them on. Uh, financial services actually grew just a bit, uh, as did real estate services. For now, um, but I think there's a lag, and then we will see real estate jobs actually go down and take a hit uh, once the data for the next quarter will be um released and also wholesale trade. Um, saw, saw small increase, but all other industries saw, saw massive hits, um, of course.
2: So on that work from home sort of, uh, percentage, I remember chatting to you, uh, I don't know if it was on the podcast or even just having a coffee with you once. Um, and you kind of bursted one of my bubbles because I thought the work from home movement was much greater than it actually was. And you said, well, based on the census, it was very few. Um, can you kind of give some just some numbers on what percentage were working home in the last census, and what you think it potentially will be in the next census?
1: Yeah, so um, it's one of my favourite statistics that we can look at from from the census data. And I remember 2011 uh, census data suggested that 4.1 uh, percent of the workforce worked from home on census day. 4.1 percent. And so when the 2016 mm. census came, came out, this was one of the first things. <laughs> I was keen to check out. I was like, surely there's this big this big surge of people working from home. And then it turned out 4.4% of the people worked from home. So not much at all. No. And now we're not quite sure because all the working from home data uh, for the lockdown period yeah. in Australia actually uh, rely on surveys, but, and they differ. But we think right around half of the workforce might be working from home, mm. which is... Uh, insane compared to the uh, current data. And this will of course change if we actually live in a post-COVID world, meaning uh, the virus is defeated and we can go back to, to normal, then we won't see 50% of the people working from home. But I can quite easily imagine a scenario where 10%, so that's more than doubling the 2016 census result, of people will be working at home, um, as of the next census, which will be held in 2021.
0: I, I find this working from home thing quite interesting because obviously uh, as we went through the first lockdown, everyone, a lot of commentary around, well, this just proves that people can work from home. This just proves that office spaces are redundant. This just proves a whole bunch of stuff, right? And so everyone's thinking, well, great, I can have a completely mobile uh, remote workforce. And then you see the pendulum swing the other way now, Um Towards a centre a bit, where they're saying, "Well, it's good in certain circumstances. It's good up to a point. It's good, you know. You're saying, you know, two to three days a week, perhaps. Um, but we do need face to face, and there's there's absolute benefits of actually working in a cohesive in one space. So there's there's quite a lot of literature sort of coming out, a lot of lot of studies on this. Um, and I am curious to know, I guess, what you think, you know, as a demographer, what you think some of the pros and cons of this whole working from home you know, movement in this, this period of time that we're going through, mm. how do how you think that they can shape the way that we think about this in a, not so much a reactive way, but a really constructive way?
1: This is almost This goes into the, uh, the area of career advice. Um, working from <laughs> home is perfectly fine if you are established in your job and if you have yeah. an extremely close working relationship to your superiors. If mm. you work for a large company, um some sort of big bank, some sort of big consultancy firm, accounting firm, maybe, um and you are in your early years of the career being able being seen is super important. um the people who make decisions about your career don't spend time with you an awful lot anyways, mm-hmm. so you really need to make um yourself seen, and that is difficult, so the act of becoming. Uh, known to the big bosses of actually then scoring a promotion will be much more difficult working from home. And um, uh, onboarding a new team member on uh, working from home is is very different mm. um, because you don't get to know people on this on this intense personal level. Of course, people do lots of weekly catch ups and whatever, yeah. but I think it particularly works well if you already. Um, have an established working relationship. So once businesses keep uh, or start growing again, I think then the working from home trend will, will slow. Uh, but that said, we'll see more people who will have the flexibility of taking their job um, home with them whenever it suits them. So that means we'll, we'll see a big spike of working from home in comparison to the last census, but it will not be as big as we might think now that everybody is working uh, from home currently.
2: And it's not going to suit everyone and everyone's life and family dynamic and their current, you know, home situation. Um, you know, some are more uh, extroverted, introverted, you know, love to, you know, in terms of the roles as well, some are, you know, very collaborative, but some are very, you know, getting through stuff. Um, and so it's, it's very interesting to kind of know that, not every job's the same, and not everything's going to kind of play out. There's also the mental health element, right? So, um, you know, working from home, you know, five days a week, you know, potentially, you know, you get cabin fever, and you're not getting the perspective of the world. But then, working from the city five days a week is probably not great either in terms of work-life balance. So it's it's really hard to know how things are going to play out um, at a macro level, isn't it?
1: Uh, absolutely. And so we do know from from research into um, you know working uh, behavior that you can roughly separate the workforce into what are called integrators and separators. They are the, the separators are the people who want to have a clear differentiation between work life and home life.
0: Mm.
1: That is becoming very, very difficult if you work from home. The yes. integrators, on the other hand, are people who are very happy to work all the time, and work early in the morning, work late at night, but in between, go out, uh, manage their kids, do all of those things. um, Those guys won't struggle with working from home, but the separators who prefer to keep things different into clear um, categories or clear boxes, if you will, they will struggle and they will go home, uh, will go home, (laughs) they will go back to the office uh, rather rather sooner than, than later. But of course, one other thing that really impacts the working from home quality is just your home. You really need a separate yeah. study. You need an additional mm-hmm. bedroom in your house to be working from home. And the larger your family is, the more important this additional bedroom um, yeah. becomes. And then we see that uh, for many people, that has been a struggle. If you know a young couple that lives in a one bedroom apartment, that's really difficult when somebody is on the Zoom call; the other one needs to sit in the bathtub and, and work from there. Uh, things become really, um, really messy simply because the homes aren't uh, equipped for for the working from home realities.
0: I did read. I did read an article about this couple that were living in a tiny, tiny apartment in Canada. They were twenty six square meters or something, and they were basically saying what a what a con the whole tiny house movement was. Um, but the other thing that I that I can I think is quite interesting is that we've been hearing, and uh, when we interviewed um, Alice Stoltz from Domain, for instance, we looked at uh, we talked about search data and the rise in um, inquiries for uh, looking for property with uh, with a home office, for, which is a bit of a no brainer, but also the rise of um, inquiry or searching activity outside the CB the cities, and so looking for in that two K the, sorry the two hour drive radius of major CBDs, people. and, And, you know, the assumption is that millennials are now going to say, great, we can move out to more affordable areas, we can go up the mountains or up the coast or down the coast. And we can still commute every few days, uh, but we can work remotely most of the time. But there's an assumption with that, that you're going to stay sort of with the same job or the same employer, potentially, or the same type of industry. There's sort of a lot of assumptions that you need to make that you're going to stick to a certain path um, work-wise if you're going to make that big commitment in terms of where you live. Would you say that's that's something that people need to be considering, Simon?
1: Oh, of course, very much so. And so when we talk about housing decision-making processes, uh, we talk about a central reference point. So whenever you look for housing, you pick some sort of central reference point. Usually that is your location uh, of work, your, your office, for example. And because all of the office jobs that we added to Melbourne or Sydney are, are clustered in the CBD, then all those workers want yeah. to live as close as possible to that, to that job. Uh, and then this is why you have this big competition for housing in this relatively small radius yeah. um now yeah. if we say well maybe the uh you know even though i still go to the cbd occasionally um then the central reference point loses its its grip over your housing decisions and you can all of a sudden uh, you can be freer to move to the regions and yeah. that's uh that's i think a real Opportunity for the regional towns to actually grow. It has been the, um, the goal of all levels of government for decades in Australia to decentralize yeah. the population. And it hasn't happened. Mm. Simply because people move to where they work or close to where they work. And the regions simply weren't the places where the jobs were created. But now all of the towns that are at least in the in a somewhat commutable distance, whatever that means to the job centers, They will see growth and they'll see growth not just because they might be centers of of, um, the existing strengths, the agriculture, the local manufacturing that we will see um, reinvigorated uh, in in Australia. They'll also become way better connected to, to the capital cities. We will see this big surge of infrastructure spending simply because once Australia is through covid you will we'll end up with a very high unemployment rate. The easiest way for a government to create jobs is building infrastructure. Creates jobs left, right, and center. Creates lots of very important middle-skilled, tradie, construction-type jobs. And the and so you just bring the infrastructure pipeline forward. And most of those projects are, are targeted at around uh, connectivity, rail, road connectivity of uh, your satellite. Regional cities to the big to the big smog, uh, so we'll see that that will really strengthen the um, the regional cities because all of a sudden the commute becomes more realistic, and of course there's the general um, preference now towards low density living. If you've been locked into an apartment like this couple Veronica that you said in in Canada, mm-hmm. um, you spent your lockdown in a small apartment, a house with a garden sounds. Like paradise, doesn't it? <laughs> and be looking for these higher, uh, you know, those bigger parcels of land. And of course, working from home. If, if you become serious about working from home, you do need a larger home. You need an additional yeah. bedroom at the mm. very least. And all of this still doesn't even take into account the biggest demographic driver in Australia of the 2020s.
0: And that Indeed. is simply
1: millennials reaching the family formation stage of the life cycle. Mm. Millennials are currently overwhelmingly living in the inner and middle suburbs of the big cities. They live in one and two bedroom apartments. And they will over the um, – because they pushed out first childbirth and marrying uh, marriage quite a bit. But in the 2020s, they will finally have uh, kids. Yeah. And once you throw a kid into the mix – you need a larger house. Then you also realize that both of you actually worked from home. So all of a sudden you think at least plus two, plus three bedrooms. That means you easily end up with a large cohort of people looking for three and four bedroom houses.
0: Mm.
1: And those houses aren't in the inner and middle suburbs
0: well they are but only in very short supply and we have absolutely without a shadow of a doubt seen increased competition for exactly that type of property uh ever since really auctions were allowed to be held again in in sydney anyway since beginning of may it's been really marked marked the demand for for really four bedroom homes in inner areas so we're seeing that but you, you, Simon, and Chris, you're both millennials and you both had your first baby this year. Um, so you guys are case in point on here, aren't you? I mean, Chris, you've all, you've pretty much done the sea change. Simon, are you living in a two-bedroom apartment with a baby and, and home office?
1: And now we live in a three-bedroom house, uh, <laughs> but we are also considering, you know, if there is, if we add one more Corona baby to the mix, uh, (laughs) then you go, ah, it might be time to to move again. And then you Mm. do realistically think, you know, will we stay in in the, I live in the inner suburbs of uh, of Melbourne. Then you think, okay, well, do we go
2: to the outer suburbs? I I think, yeah, and I think you picked up on a really good point, Veronica. And I think prior to COVID, if you were going to leave the city, no matter, uh, and take the risk of, um, even if you wanted to, even if you saw the lifestyle benefits of living on the Mornington Peninsula or the Great Ocean Road, sort of Geelong area or outside of Sydney um, and and work facilitated it. work said, yeah, that's fine. You can work from home and come into the city one, two days a week. You were always in the back of your mind saying, what happens if I lost my job? Like, would, would, another, would I be able to get another job down here? Oh, well, I won't be able to get something locally for my skill set. And it's going to be hard to get a job remote because employers just weren't offering that but I guess it's just do employers have to offer and do they look are they willing to kind of hire staff all over the country um that's where I'm just not 100 percent certain on yet because we haven't kind of seen that happen on scale yet even though it makes sense and do you agree Simon that that's still a bit of an unknown that this is going to stick and employers are going to change
1: yeah so this is why I wouldn't favor um regional locations that are too far away from the inner city uh, yeah. because there you don't have access to the to the job centers at all i would think that many people want to stay at least in a nightmare scenario in incommutable distance that they say well yes. even if i even if my current plans fell through i could kind of make it back to the um to the big employment hubs and so that's that's a speculation that people will make, which is why when I say I, I, I predict growth in regional Australia, I'm uh, talking about the regional hubs here. The larger the regional town, uh, the better the prospect. The further away from a capital city you are, um, the more difficult things will be because then your local job center needs to be attractive enough. There will be quite a few uh, really regional towns um, that will manage to do so. You know, a town like Swan Hill in in Victoria might actually be able to. Uh, you know, this is an existing local manufacturing um, hub, if you will. Um, and if we see a strengthening of local manufacturing, this is a town that can be strong enough. A Shepparton, uh, if we double down on agriculture again and a bit of uh, manufacturing, that might be strong enough to actually hold. Uh, you know, uh, be strong enough uh, for to attract people in its own right. But it's much more difficult for a Shepparton than it will be for a Ballarat or Bendigo who are in the yeah. distance to Melbourne.
2: Do you think Melbourne's going to be affected a lot more than Sydney? Obviously, we're in different stages and of lockdown and even though the news is kind of national, right? But do you think that what's happening in Melbourne psychologically is going to have a bigger impact on people than, say, people in Sydney?
1: Um, yes, so that's that's the psychological impact, but that's also assuming that things are staying the way they are now. Um, we are nowhere through COVID, um, so we don't know how the next yep. months plan out. You mm-hmm. know, as we as we are recording this, Melbourne is in lockdown and and Sydney is is doing all right. This could switch literally yeah. in a week, um, yeah. so we don't we don't know, and I'm not willing to speculate on how well. Uh, specific cities are are getting uh, through this, but it will, once you live through lockdown for long enough, you do change the way you view your neighborhood. People are now exclusively in Melbourne um, uh, operating in their five kilometer radius. So all of a sudden, the idea that has been uh, around for a long time in urban planning of the 20 minute city will become significantly more important. That means that we have a city that is really focusing um, on, on local availability of all uh, relevant services, of shops. That means that local neighbourhoods will need to become much more walkable, much more attractive to active transport. That largely means uh, cycling. So we will see that people all of a sudden spend more time in their local dog parks, in their local uh you know, like little little park areas. And so the local attractiveness of a suburb will become more important. It will become more of a factor when when pricing housing, I, w- I would say.
0: This is really fascinating. And, and I was um, just reflecting on this just this week because um, like you, Simon, I'm presuming you've got relatives living in Germany. I've got relatives living. My sister lives in Italy. And... And I'm thinking to myself, how many years is it going to be before I get to see her and my nephews and my brother-in-law again? Um, it could be five years. Who knows? And and I reflect back on on people of my parents' generation who might have migrated here, say, from England or Ireland. And they would go decades sometimes without actually seeing their family. And... It's almost like going back to the olden days, really, isn't it? I mean, we didn't go out for dinner. Oh, I we I mean, I grew up not going out for dinner ever ever, but um, you know, our our societies, we didn't eat out all the time. We didn't have a cafe society, um, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. We didn't venture too far away from our local area. Um, you know, we didn't all have cars. I mean, there's a there's a whole shift in in many ways to like the olden days. Would you say that that's sort of what's happening?
1: I, it's it's happening to a degree that is probably less dramatic because today everybody is skyping uh, their their <laughs> far away distant relatives, so you do feel more connected um, in a way to the people that are that are far away. Um, mm. but, and it doesn't mean that we that the desire to travel uh, has 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 been killed off or anything. No. I really think it's... <laughs> Um, that the idea of the local neighborhood that will stay because you spend mm. more time in your local, local neighborhood, so it just will hopefully shape the way that we build and, and restructure our, our suburbs um, and make it make it simply more livable, more local, and there's no need to uh, to drive, for example, if you have a shop in, in walking distance. And people don't necessarily mm. tend to do this. Then People people then just do smaller shops, walk around more. It's quite interesting to see, and I haven't seen exact studies uh, here. I've only seen stuff from, from Austria from decades ago, that if there is less to do in a town, people do things more slowly. People spend uh, more time just hanging out and talking to people. That's the, kind of, uh, that's the kind of changes that we've, seen, we've been seeing here. My friends tell me the same stories. I'm experiencing this. You're just spending more time with your family, of course, and with like, quick chats with the neighbors that might not have happened like this um, beforehand. And that then makes the um, engagement with your local neighborhood more important. So we talked a lot about previously mm-hmm. around the, the impersonal nature of city living, and now people are uh, actually taking proactive step of engaging uh, with their neighbors simply because yeah. the third spaces, that these are usually the restaurants. You know, we, we outsourced entertaining, which was done in the home. Our parents' generation would have entertained in their home. Uh, and because we now live in, in small inner city apartments as a generation more and more, um, yeah. We then did the entertaining in, in third spaces, in restaurants, in parks, and now we can't do this. Um, it's, it, it does have a psychological impact of how uh, you wish your home to be, and now people just have time to finally clean out their garage and things. And that mm-hmm. then means you're more invested in your home in the first place.
2: What do you think some of the big demographic shifts for Australia that we'll see? At least during the first lockdown, some
1: people joke that we will see a corona baby boom uh, in in nine months time. And the exact opposite will be the case. In times of economic uncertainty, birth rates go down quite a bit. This is simply um, because it's too hard. I would also like to say that I expect there are very few second babies or third babies uh, being added to families at the moment just because you are, you are under so much uh, stress managing kids without much um, you know support of of the grandparents who might not be allowed to visit or without childcare centers. So it just puts the family under a bit more stress. So you don't necessarily add this. So we will see a decline in birth rates. That means fewer babies for at least two, three years. We will also see, um, well, this year we, we expect zero net migration. Last year we had way over 200,000. So um, that means we have the age group of the migrants. And migrants tend to be between 18 and 39. Um, So we don't, we have fewer of those people for years to come. Um, And that essentially really means we have a smaller Gen Z. That's the Greta Thunberg generation. That's the generation born 2000 to 2017, approximately. Um, This generation will be smaller than we expected it to be. And that has quite a significant impact on the housing market. Because currently, and I mentioned it before, millennials, a big generation, lives in the inner city in one and two bedroom apartments because this is where the unis are, this is where the jobs are. They will now move to the outer suburbs, to suburbia, maybe even to the regional towns to look for larger housing. Their now empty flats will be taken uh, over by Gen Z as they move through the life cycle, but it's a much smaller generation. So that means that there is a higher vacancy rate of those one and two bedroom apartments that the millennials are are leaving unoccupied that means that we will see in this kind at this end of the market we'll see a drop in prices quite clearly whereas we'll see probably higher prices in the 3 and 4 bedroom category simply because there will be an awful lot of competition and there will be essentially no competition for a one and bed one bedroom apartment
0: I see a market opportunity in buying one and two bedders and joining them together to create three and fours. <laughs> but um, h- how about apartment living in general? I mean, obviously, if you're living in an a, a apartment building with a lift and that lift is not bigger than four square metres, you've you've one at a time getting in the lift or you've got to wear masks, you're worrying yeah. about touching common, common property, door handles, lift buttons, all that sort of stuff. But also you've got, um, you know, so um, this is all... And then, and then you've got the extreme example of what's happened with the public housing towers in Melbourne, and that really shows quite clearly what happens. And there's a lot of people living in small apartments, of course. But, you know, is this changing the way that we think about apartment living? Do you think this whole, you know, coronavirus um, life?
1: Uh, it it does massively because uh, lots of the apartments, if you, if you look at the apartments that are being, oh, that were built in Melbourne and Sydney in particular over the last, let's call it, decade, um, they're very small. Lots of the lots of the apartments, and the, the, the assumptions of how people are living there really means that people are supposed to be spending tons of time outside of their apartment. This is not the case. The apartment uh, or any home really is now uh, you spend much more time in the apartment than you bargained for when you yeah. first um, when, you, when you first purchased or, or rented it. That means uh, that the whole stock of apartments are really unattractive at the moment. Mm. And mm-hmm. you can't just add a big, luxurious balcony and uh, combining apartments is really costly. Um, but if the market drops deep enough, which I'm not quite sure um, you know how deep it will drop. This really depends on the speed of recovery. Once we recover, the first people that we will let into the country are international students because they are perfect cash cows, Um, They are underwriting our uh, university system. So we'll let them in at at big numbers once it's possible. We'll let in all the Hong Kong Chinese people. Um, So there might be, there's enough appetite, I guess, for for migration to to re-enter Australia once it's possible. But if it's not possible, the apartment market in the inner city has a couple of really difficult years ahead, I would say.
2: I wonder about that migration as well like does Australia uh, do people around the world Aussies living overseas want to come back to Australia more Um, potentially if they're living in you know the states or the UK or Hong Kong etc and anecdotally we've seen that we've seen um, you know particularly in Southeast Asia we've had quite a few clients you know decide to come back and and want to buy properties that they might not be ready to come back now but they know that you know, it's becoming more important for them to, to come back. Um, but but also will migration, you know, it's one of the only tickets for the game for the government, will they potentially make the rules a lot more relaxed, you know? Do, but do they do that when unemployment's still quite high? Because, you know, it wouldn't go down very well, I guess, you know, to win votes. So, you know, how do you think that migration story will play out? Do you think it'll be back to similar levels or much higher or still much lower for a long time?
1: So migration... Um... Really, there are three, essentially three types of, of migrants, Um and the the so we have international students, big big share of migrants are international students, and there's no problem with the job market letting them in because they pay for their you know they need to show that they yeah. have enough money anyways, so they are they are great, so we'll let them back in as soon as possible. <laughs> we'll have a couple of uh, those family reunion. Uh, uh, Migrants, they'd be very small numbers, actually, and very small uh, refugee numbers, so asylum seeker numbers. So that's, that's yeah. easy to manage. Our migration program was largely a skilled migration program. Yeah. That means in order for a skilled migrant to enter Australia, we needed to prove that we need their qualifications in order to, to boost our economy. And in a world uh, that we were used to have with 5 with 6% unemployment, that was quite sustainable. Mm. Uh, in a world of, and uh, we'll probably end up with a real unemployment rate of fifteen percent or, or something thereabouts. Doesn't really matter how much, but it will be very high. You yeah. then have a very small need for highly specialized workers, whatever those jobs will end up being. But it will be very small numbers. So we don't, we won't see the the two hundred thousand net migration numbers uh, for for a long time, simply because it's not the type of. Um, it's not the type of migrants that we, that we need at the moment.
2: Yeah. So if we're not saying that, then, uh, you know, we're, we still, we reckon the Aussies will move back, you know, because if the, if they go with unemployment, you know, 15% back home, that's not even going to potentially bridge that gap either.
0: You know, it's funny that I was just talking to Megan. Wells. she's my business partner at Home Buyer Academy and she's based in Brisbane. Her, um, She's a buyer's agent up there She and she's also got a property management business. She was saying that there's a real shortage of houses to rent in Brisbane, sort of family houses now, because expats have been moving back into their house and uh-huh. it's, it's quite pronounced enough for her to really, really notice it. So um, that's obviously happening there. I haven't really checked in with um, uh, property managers in, in Sydney asking the same question and I'm not sure if it's happening in Melbourne, but that's uh, there's probably not the incentive to move back to Melbourne right this minute. But it certainly seems that that might change. Um, and certainly the attitude is changing amongst sex pets.
1: Oh, and, and it points to a couple of uh, numbers that we need to read very carefully. Numbers like occupancy rates. They'll be rather pointless uh, rather quickly because we're, we will see high, uh, you know, very large, uh, unoccupied numbers uh, of, of one and two bedroom dwellings. But mm. the three and four bedroom dwellings, they will be under a lot of competition You know, because the the baby boomers, the empty nesters or or widows that live in three and four bedroom family in the old family home, um, we do know that they are not downsizing, for example. Mm. So these houses will not enter the market uh, before the the persons living in there either um, just can't live in the house anymore because it becomes uh, uh, unacceptable or because the person dies. And that is really still a decade plus away because baby boomers aren't that old just yet. So the, um, the housing stock occupied by baby boomers won't enter the market. Um, so the big game in building really is three and four bedroom dwellings. Where are we adding them? Um, can we add them if we want to add them in the inner cities? Like are we building large three and four bedroom apartments? We don't. No, in yeah. Paris, inner city Paris. They are wonderful, gorgeous three and four bedroom apartments. Actually, all the European cities. Mm. But we're not building yeah. any of these simply because it's it's probably a hard bargain or uh, hard to finance those areas. If you manage to build a whole tower in an inner city and sell one and two bedrooms, you're making a killing. It's a yeah. really attractive bet. Um, you know, building a five or six story building with a couple of three and four bedroom dwellings that's much harder to sell, even though the market will be there.
0: Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I think it's been made very easy for developers to pitch, you know, really shitty buildings full of shitty one and two bedroom apartments to investors for starters, because there's been a lot of government incentive directed towards investors buying brand new. And likewise now in particular now with first home buyers, you know, the, the governments across the border are ramping up the incentives for first home buyers and nearly every single one of those incentives is directed at buying brand new. And unfortunately, you know, if they and they've got caps on them, price caps, so that yeah. it once again encourages the developers to keep these apartments small, so that they actually stay under the price cap. So mm. it, it, there's very little, mm. you know, structural incentive for developers to actually build the stock we actually need.
1: Yeah, uh, you, yeah, you make an absolutely brilliant point there, Veronica. It's the, we built substandard uh, housing stock in Australia for over a decade now, which is really problematic. Mm. It was very much understandable in insane boom times. Melbourne added the population of Adelaide in just a decade. <laughs> so when you add well over 100,000 people every single year, you need to build housing uh, at a breakneck pace. And mm. if land is just... Uh, really really expensive the only way to cut costs is to build with cheaper materials Mm. and to build really cramped housing um so if if you think about all of the you know the quarter acre blocks that are being bulldozed in in melbourne and sydney as well and then you put three townhouses on there Nobody wants to live in those townhouses. Nobody you know, grows up dreaming of one of those townhouses. <laughs> it's an unattractive housing stock that we're building at scale. They are, they're cramped. They're small. Um, it's, it's an unattractive solution to urban, to urban planning, but it makes financial sense for the individual um, developer.
0: I think the freestanding, the freestanding blocks, freestanding houses on little tiny, you know, three hundred square metre blocks, um, they're not townhouses, but I think they're equally unattractive. You know, I was just looking online, and and once again, these, you know, somebody buys a block, the bond fences go up, and then they go and buy, the, pick the house design they want, and gets plonked on the block without any real aspect of, or, or any real consideration of the individual block. And then you see things like picture windows in living rooms that are seventy, you know, seventy centimeters away from a colorbond fence. You know, huge big windows looking at a a sheet of steel. It's just really horrible. (laughs) Very unattractive.
1: And 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 I think when you think when the millennial big millennial uh, heap of population is now looking for housing, you you can look at this, you know, three bedroom cramped house in the inner or or middle suburb and you go okay well so that's i can buy this for nine hundred thousand dollars if i find a cheap one Uh, probably more probably way more or i can buy in a regional city all of a sudden Mm. you know the regions look way more attractive
2: especially in sydney The people go i've got a million let's say one low ones um and we're going do i buy a you know, and be a, a two bedroom apartment, um, or a, you know, a rundown sort of two bedroom house in the inner ring? Or do I look at the Central Coast? Or do I look at north of Wollongong, or, you know, uh, potentially the Blue Mountains or Southern Highlands, etc. Um, and the same thing will be happening in Melbourne, I imagine where, you know, people say, I've got a million to spend, can either live in, you know, in a ring, or do I go to Geelong or Mornington Peninsula etc you made a really interesting point which you you kind of just set it around the downsizes and that they don't generally downsize because they want to stay in the home either stay there till death or they stay there till aged care Um, is that what the the stats kind of say people don't generally even get get out of the house unless they absolutely have to
1: yeah so at scale at scale I'd say a decade ago we com- uh, collectively uh, overestimated the the uh, downshifting movement yeah it's it's a, the, the baby boomers is a generation that values uh, their independence that values their freedom of uh, of living and they now sit in very attractive suburbs the the middle suburbs that is uh, that are dominated by baby boomers were when they first purchased 30 40 years ago not that attractive uh, suburbs but now they are very very attractive of course you're going to stay there. your kids are probably not that far away so you have very little um, incentive to actually move and and, and particularly right now if if you you know we're hoping to have another 10 years or, or more that your house accrues values and just you know value just goes up and up um, and now you see a slum for the first time in forever you know, of course I'm waiting it out quite mm-hmm. a bit. Um, there's, yeah. So I, I see very little motivation for a baby boomer to sell their house at the moment, unless they are financially forced to do so. Or unless they really were looking to sell in the next three, four, five years, then I might actually need to time the market now and think, okay, if I'm thinking this COVID thing is becoming rather serious um, and I need cash now, I might actually take the punt and sell now rather than see my house price fall further.
0: It very much depends on what they plan to do with the money, but also um, whether that's their main asset. And so, you know, if if they're planning on the next step for them is to go into aged care, I'd hazard that there probably is going to be not be a lot of that going on. Let's face it. Um, You've got a massive incentive to stay at home as long as possible now.
1: Oh, absolutely. You're actually mentioning a couple of the when we talked about the baby boomer dream goals, you know, finally going on this big cruise that you saved up for. Yeah, well, that's mm. not going to happen. Um, your uh, safety option of, you know, when you're old and tired of going into some sort of fancy aged care home, even if you might be able to afford like a really nice one, um, it never really sounded attractive. And now it sounds outright dangerous. So yeah. <laughs> um, there will be very little movement of those people that will want to do any, you know, will want to change a house in, in later in life. I, I expect we'd rather see a big boom in, um, you know, neighborhood nurses, you know, those uh, neighborhood yeah. services that actually come to your house mm. and just enable you um, to live independently for, for much longer. So these kind of services will will grow rather than um, the the centralised
2: uh, aged care home, I, I, I'd expect so at least. And there's probably a finance element, there's been a, you know, uh, the whole reverse mortgage sort of element will start to grow, you know, I've already seen different companies pop up that are basically, you know, they buy a share of the property, and they'll give you some cash today. So when you do pass away or go into aged care, or whatever it is, um, they just get some of the growth for, yeah. you know, the loan that they give you. And I you know, while they potentially haven't had a huge uptake in the past, I think that will allow the downsizer just to stay in the home um, and and get the cash that they need to live rather than selling. Um, so, Simon, have you got a property Dumbo for us?
1: Well, I think the worst thing you could have done is purchase a one-bedroom apartment in January. I think that's the worst <laughs> thing you could have done that I could think of.
0: Oh dear. Yes, um, and that actually is quite interesting that the landscape for one and two-bedroom apartments is quite challenging now, isn't it? And the other thing too is, and I know myself, you know, our fundamental premise around buying investment property is that within the 10K radius of the CBD is the safest area, and we've been talking specifically in Sydney and Melbourne, and this coronavirus has absolutely tipped that completely and utterly on its head. So I think, yeah, I think what you say about an unfortunate Dumbo would have been someone bought a one-bedroom apartment in January.
2: What are the, um, some of the biggest sort of longer-term positive and negative things, you know, our listeners can kind of think about in terms of post-COVID that are, you know, good for our future, but also what do you think the challenges are going to be for us?
1: Yeah. Well, so I'm, I'm really hoping that one of the good things to come out of COVID will be a refocusing on local neighbourhoods. We have very much ignored them because we built so many satellite uh, suburbs, essentially, where people, you know, those dormitory suburbs where people just sleep uh, and they don't spend time in them. That's not a way to do urban planning. What we really need are attractive destinations across the whole city. Each uh, 20-minute block, if you will, is meant to be attractive in its own right, have its own characteristics, have its own attractions um, to visit. And this will dominate urban planning. We will actually make sure to uh, have more active transport there, have more walkable communities um, as a nation that is collectively overweight. That is a very helpful thing to refocus on, on the local and it's something that people always complain about. Really, uh, that we are so impersonal. And if you spend essentially all of your time in a five-kilometer radius uh, from your home, um, you are refocusing on the on the local. You are all of a sudden really invested that your local fruit shop uh, stays open, that your lovely local cafe stays open. All of these uh, things just bind you closer to your local neighborhood, and that is something that we actually want and that we have been lacking um generally speaking in in at least in the big cities so i do think that this will change uh, to to the better it, it's a matter of degree of how how big will this um change be the the negative thing out of COVID is that we had you know we'll take away growth for a couple of years um economic growth that will have real impact on everybody's superannuation savings this will have real impacts on on just the the career earnings uh, that people can take, and so mm. we need to make sure to actually account for this. You know, I'm very worried about people taking out, uh, you know, the the money from their super. People who manage it themselves and do smart things with it, that's fine. But I think the majority of people just really cut into their retirement uh, mm. savings for good.
2: Mm. Yeah, I mean that's it's crazy how much money's come out. I mean. We're talking over $30 billion, I believe. And, um, yeah, and then there's also data that, you know, people who track bank accounts can basically see how people spend that money and it's pretty mind-boggling where that money's going. Food delivery, online gambling, um, you know, some of the biggest areas where all of that 10 grand's sort of going. Mm. So, um, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty scary. Um, what about some I in the longer-term sort of positive news that Australia's got over the world that, you know, while this might be something that goes on for one, two, three, four, five years, potentially, fundamentally, you can, in your mind, have this reference point that things will still be okay in Australia. Australia's got a lot of positives about it. Well, I,
1: I think the we will still live in a global world that is shifting increasingly towards knowledge work, towards um, jobs where you need to think, towards jobs that are essentially footloose, that could be, positioned anywhere in the world and australia even though we are in lockdown now in in, in melbourne at the moment uh, is managing this reasonably well and if we manage to get out of this and we manage it better than other countries we seem uh, like a very safe uh, city and that's what that's what will really uh, be the driver for lots of the international talent um, globally will be what is the most attractive global destination to go to? What is the most livable city in the world? That's the kind of thing that we are competing with. And we we now see international students being scared away from the U.S. Um, Hmm. Would you like to study in China at the moment? If I was living in Taiwan, if I was living in Hong Kong at the moment, I'd be very much scanning the globe at the moment uh, for a safer place to spend my Korea. I mean you remember people invest their time, their energy uh, sure. their money. So globally we look very, very safe. And the, the worse the relationships between the US and China become, the more attractive Australia will look to, to many, I would argue. But in, in a scenario where we say we actually move post-COVID rather quickly, then people will assess the quality or the you know how, people, how countries got through the crisis. They, mm-hmm. will, they will somehow put this into their, their computations that they make uh, when, they, when they think, where do I want to move to? And lots mm-hmm. of international talent um, will, will think this way. You know, if, if I'm a young programmer from anywhere in the world, um, and I always thought Silicon Valley is the coolest thing and the place to be, I might still go, but I might actually have been scared away by seeing all of these uh, you know horrible images from the U.S., and I haven't seen any of these images from Australia. I haven't seen them from Canada. So there might be locations that actually benefit from this. I, I, you know, I'm sure everybody who can is now looking at New Zealand with very, very um, admiring <laughs> eyes as well.
2: And that's yes. the thing is a lot of our uh, talent that, you know, there might be the millennial generation like you talk about that have got the skills now and, you know, maybe want to go do a couple of years in London or the US, etc. Um, and then potentially they go there and they stay there because of the work prospects, you know, maybe do they not go at all? Um, and, you know, does that keep our, buyer, you know, our talent here, even if we don't get, you know, foreign migration? So it's just really interesting tracking a big shift like this. And um, I think in the property market, it is a massive shift in terms of the, the buyer preferences that potentially mm. weren't there before. And then how does that play out in terms of where does demand go to, you know, you know, a lot of first time buyers um, in Sydney and Melbourne thought that their only option was to, you know, they can't afford a house in an area that they want to live. So let's just go get a really nice apartment in an area that we want to live. And, you know, do they keep, to do, keep doing that? Or do they look at alternatives? And it's just something we've got to we keep learning about and watching because no one really knows yet it's it's not till after COVID that we actually see whether we go back to our old habits or whether we you know yeah. build new ones
1: fully fully agree yeah.
0: thank you so much Simon that was just absolutely value-packed for us and so many wonderful insights um and things to I think I've got so many ideas for other episodes um and other experts we need to talk of bouncing off this and we definitely want to get you back as well. So thank you for your time.
1: Uh, always happy to be back.
2: Thank you, Simon, and really stay safe down there. We, I do feel for everyone in Victoria right now and, um, yep. yeah, stay safe, mate. We want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is...
0: Well, Simon's Dumbo was a bit chilling, I guess, for some people who might have bought a one-bedroom apartment in January, um, but what I thought we should do in the boot camp is to discuss what perhaps you should do if you have managed to go and buy a one or two-bedroom apartment in recent times, or even if you've been holding one for some time, and certainly in inner Sydney, and I'm talking very inner Sydney, such as uh, you know Potts Point, Elizabeth Bay, those sorts of areas, those small one and two bedroom apartments have done extraordinarily well in recent years. And, you know, I would like to think we'll continue to do so. But there's been a lot and a lot of development and a lot that have been sold that don't have those elements of scarcity or aren't potentially in those great locations. So, you know, let's talk about the fear factor that some investors in particular are going to be feeling. And if you're an owner-occupier, I would say just stay put. But certainly for an investor, you're going to be start getting a little bit nervous if you're unable to rent the property out or if you're fearing that values are going to be plummeting. So I just thought we should touch on a couple of things. The first thing I think that's really important to consider if you are owning a property that you're worried it's going to be in in this catch-all one, two bedroom apartments are going to suffer for a few years, is you've got to look at location. If the property is in a location where it has great access to a beach, for instance, or a great access to the harbour or great access to a, a really unique village then that's something that can't be replicated. You know, that is scarcity. And there's also scarcity in the actual build quality, the style of apartment, um, the design of it, and the finishes. So if it's an older art deco, there's scarcity in that. There's just so few of them really around compared to the total uh, apartment stock. Or if it's a warehouse conversion, it's a a particularly good one, the same deal. You've got scarcity, haven't you? Um, And then obviously even with the newer stuff, if you go down to Erskineville, for instance, there's a lot of new buildings down there, but there's one or two that really stand out because they have had a, a, quite a beautiful design and standard of um, material that's been used as well. I think some of those buildings will stand the test of time as being really, really lovely buildings to be in. You, they look great on the outside and some of the apartments on the, uh, in some of these buildings are very well thought out, very well designed and very well finished and well built. Um And those sorts of properties, I think, will stand up and be counted over time. Whereas the cookie cutter stuff, the really crappy apartments and where there's lots and lots and lots of all the same stuff, and we've been banging on this forever, you know, if you're holding one of those, you might start to think seriously about what your options are. Because if we are, as Simon suggested, staring down a period of years where the demand for one and two bedroom apartments is going to really fall then you might need to actually really think about whether you do need to make a decision now about whether you hold on to it or not. What are your thoughts on that one, Chris?
2: I think you're 100% right. I think that, you know, not all apartments are, are doomed, for example, um, the ones that are scarce and I, uh, particularly the buildings that are that are still attracting the owner occupiers and, the, um, you know, not everyone can follow this work from home movement and want to move to the middle and outer rings and rural locations, some people just love Sydney for the lifestyle benefits around the city, the harbour, the beaches, um, their friends, their community, etc. So even if they can work from home two or three days a week, um, doesn't mean they're not going to potentially want to commute to the city five days a week and still live the life that they've continued to live. So I don't think all the demand is just going to leave. And I do think that they still can't afford houses. And so they are still going to want really nice, bigger apartments that are scarce. So, if you've got one of those, um, don't be falling for the doom and gloom out there that apartments are dead and etc. Um, but don't look to kind of potentially sell it right now because I just think the demand isn't really that strong and the sentiment around it is going to really affect your price potentially. Um, in saying that though, just in the last couple of months pre this second wave, we had two people sell apartments and got massive prices that were arguably bigger than that of what it was pre-COVID. So, Um, and there were two scarce apartments. So, you know, that's probably for that, which is I agree with. I think the other sort of, um, if you've got things that are poor, I guess it's, we had a client literally last night sell a property and they know it's not a great property. It was, they know that when they bought it and they, you know, just in their head just wanted to get into the market and, you know, and they did a bit of work to the place. But, you know, the reality is they're always going to outgrow it. And, um, you know, they by selling a basically a poor asset right now, they didn't get a great price. Um, Definitely not what they would have got pre-COVID, but by selling it, they've still got enough cash left over to potentially go and now buy um, their future home. And so while they might be losing on the left hand, hopefully right now, it's gonna come down to how lucky they are really. um, And they can facilitate buying a better asset, potentially for a better price. That's a bit of an unknown. Um, and so if, if even if you potentially can 't get a great price right now and you have to lose money or it 's not what you wanted, if it enables you to do something else, then really think about it because I think you could win much greater on that hand than the loss on the left hand.
0: Yeah, I think definitely if you are staring down the barrel and you know fundamentally because you've been listening to this podcast long enough now that whatever you're holding isn't that great an asset, then you do have to make some yeah. pretty hard decisions. But if you, you know, take take care that if you actually are holding a good asset, there's going to be some, you know, there will be some headwinds for apartments, you know, for a while, but just ride it out because at the end of that, you've yeah. still got a good asset that's scarce, that's unique, that's, you know, going to have appeal and you just have to have faith that you've. You know it, it, that you bought well in the first place, and this is where holding the holding the course is really important because you know it's about asset quality, and the you know, I think the reality is that we've probably forgotten in thirty years without a recession. You know, we forget that things can get tough, and so when things get tough, you you sometimes you got to write stuff out, right? But um, there's also an opportunity to bail potentially now if you really have got something that's pretty horrible and you're being honest with yourself about it
2: yeah and it's just about trying to limit the damage sometimes look, like, uh, if you've been thinking a lot of people are hoping it to get better and you know if it's a poor asset uh you know they wanted the investors to come back well the investors aren't coming back you know the home buyers aren't there um building issues and so just assuming that things are going to return to like they were when you purchased the property in 2000 you know 12 or 13 um You know, it might not ever get back like that in any reasonable time frame. So, you know, there's always a cost. There's an opportunity cost. And what you probably might be using is a lot of your borrowing capacity to do something else with, whether Mm -hmm. that's upgrade your home, whether that's buy an investment, et cetera. And so really understand what your opportunity cost of holding something is, because generally when you add that in, then it makes sense to sell.
0: us for our next episode we're talking with Hex's Chief Customer Officer Lisa Dowie. We are talking about everything digital and what I mean by that is e-conveyancing. This has been a little quiet movement that's been going on in the background for the last say four or five years in property transactions and what a lot of buyers and sellers have been really unaware of is actually what goes into the actual settlement of a property. It's really important because a lot of things can go missing and understanding why your conveyancer needs to be on board with this is really important. So tune in and work out really what we're being saved from in the new era. If you're looking to buy your dream
2: Wealthful.com.au.
0: If you're a first home buyer and you don't want to miss a step with this most important purchase, join me on Wednesday nights at 7.30pm Sydney time on the Home Buyer Academy Facebook page for live Q&A. Check out the website
2: homebuyeracademy.com.au Every month my team hosts a webinar on what we are seeing at the banks, the best rates, changing policy and their service. We also share the latest insights we hear and read that are impacting the property market direction. Check out wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us.
0: We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.